Welcome to the Future of Work Hub's In Conversation With podcast. I'm Lucy Lewis, a partner in Lewis Silkin's employment team. And in this podcast series, I'll be hosting exclusive discussions with innovators, business leaders, and thought leaders to explore their perspectives on the longer term trends and immediate drivers shaping the world of work. Now, we know the pandemic was a catalyst for accelerating significant change in the world of work and Office closures meant that during periods of lockdown, there was a wholesale shakeup in working practices. And as businesses have emerged from the pandemic, what we've seen is office-based employers have started to experiment and, and explore new ways of working. And we've seen an increasing number of employers adopting mostly hybrid, but in some cases, totally remote models of working. But there's one really big question that endures in all of that. And that's what is the future of the office? What role should the office play in supporting these new ways of working? And I'm really fortunate today to have with me two people that are ideally placed to answer that question. I'm joined by somebody I've known for a very long time, Philip Ross, founder and CEO of Ungroup and Cordless Group, and Jeremy Myerson, director of Work Tech Academy. Philip specialises in predicting the impact of digital disruption and new technology on the way we work, but also how we shop, how we learn. And he's advised organisations such as McKinsey, Marks and Spencers, Barclays, the BBC, on innovation and future workplace concepts. Jeremy is an academic researcher. He's an author and activist in workplace design and innovation. He holds the Helen Hamlin Chair of Design at the Royal College of Art, and he's a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford. And last year, Jeremy and Philip put their brilliant minds together and authored a really fascinating book, Unworking, The Reinvention of the Modern Office. And the book focuses on the the, the post-pandemic workplace. It, it, It prevents a manifesto for unworking, unlearning old habits, old rituals, things that were established for an outdated office and creating new ones, new things that reflect an age of digital technology, of design innovation and of course diversity in workforces. And after taking us through a a sort of hundred year history and journey of the development of the modern office, the book lands in the near future and it, it includes a series of predictions about how our workplaces might become more human-centred, more social, more sustainable. It's really interesting. I'd encourage everybody to read it. But in the meantime, I'm delighted, Jeremy and Philip, to welcome you to the podcast and have an opportunity to talk to you about it. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lucy. Good pleasure to be here. Now, the central event in the book is, is the pandemic and the pandemic shuts offices and that forces lots of us, probably all three of us, to work from home. And as we've as we've emerged from the pandemic and we've we've had time to adjust to new ways of working, people have started to sort of consider more, evaluate more, whether their physical workspaces and their physical working practices, whether those things are fit for purpose. And there's lots and lots for us to discuss here today. But I thought a good place to start would be for you to explain this concept of unworking and, and give us a flavour of the key areas where you think businesses need to unlearn and reimagine the workplace of the future? Well, Lucy, the book Unworking is not about literally not working. It's about unraveling how we work. And we have a a definition for unworking, which is really about 
unbundling our assumptions about the modern office, unlearning the habits and rituals that have defined our behavior at work, really challenging everything we know about work and workplace and trying to come up with new ways of working. So there are lots of places and practices which need to be challenged. And in the book, we, we, we itemize and discuss and dissect quite a number of them. And I think, Jeremy, to kind of to add to the idea of the definition of unworking, we also looked at the idea of a few unlearnings. I mean, I think, you know, pre-pandemic, for many organizations or firms, it was almost unthinkable to work anywhere but the office. And of course, we all pivoted to something very different. And now we're trying to reimagine what the future looks like. People are trying to experiment with hybrid. You know, most organizations and, and, and firms are talking that people are coming back two, three days a week. And so we're thinking about the idea that, you know, the office is no longer the only place of work, as we now know, but there's also a continuum of spaces. It's not just home and office, the binary kind of polar extremes, but there's now a continuum. And we explore that. We we explore, of course, experience, because for the first time ever, people are being asked to make decisions, you know, when to come into the office, and if so, who else will be there, and and, and what kind of space they're going to get to work in. And I think also we're seeing the idea that workplaces will become intelligent. I mean, Lucy offices have always been what I would call dumb containers for work. And now with technology, they can be real-time containers. You know, real-time real estate is now with us. And the data that that creates allows us to shape experience, but also make more informed decisions. And I think also we're seeing, as you mentioned, diversity. People embrace true diversity and inclusion. We, we had before a very homogenous workplace, you know, one size fits all. I think now with choice and variety, we can really truly celebrate difference. So I think unworking has a range of ingredients and and unlearnings that we need to focus on. That's, it's really helpful and it's great scene setting and there are oh, there's a lot more detail obviously in the book there were three unlearnings I thought it would be useful to focus the d- discussion around in the time that we've got and I'm going to start by exploring a bit about this idea of rethinking learning and then you've talked about workplace experience or working experience and inclusion it would be good to to talk a bit more about those but if start with this idea of of learning or unlearning because One of the things that happened with the pandemic is we saw this sort of very, very rapid shift to hybrid working. And it's only now that we're starting to really consider what some of the barriers are to that. And and one of the, the assumptions that I think keeps coming up is that there's an idea that it's important for employees to be physically present in the office, particularly so that more junior staff can learn from senior people. And and because that sort of builds knowledge, but it also builds this idea of social capital, cultural capital. And so that kind of informal knowledge acquisition, you, you kind of need people to be together. You need them to be in one place. You need them to overhear conversations, how they interact with their colleagues, how they might interact with with clients. And replicating that sort of informal type of learning is something that we hear continually as a challenge of the hybrid model particularly if you're in a or ideas business or or a business like ours a sort of knowledge business for, for lawyers and I'm I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on that how can employers address that challenge I, I think the challenge of relearning learning is one of the big aspects of unworking and Lawyers are very interested in bringing people back to the office. So are the large banks. And that's because there's been a model of training and mentoring 
where junior members of the team um, eavesdrop. They look over the shoulder of senior partners, often in open plan space. But increasingly, as we move into a hybrid world, that model is looking pretty dated. And there are technologies, immersive technologies, that are developing. There are new ways of learning. If one looks at education, for example, and and look particularly at medical education, you've got a series of of new innovations coming through. Holohuman is one we discuss, which is a 3D model of human anatomy. And medical students can learn virtually through immersive experiences. And and it's a new way of, of learning. And bringing everyone into the office and co-locating them is very good for social capital, but it's not always great in terms of a workforce that is going to be working in a, in a hybrid future. So we've got to rethink how we pull these things together. And it's a challenge for traditional firms. And it's one of the biggest drivers of, of, of getting people back to the office. But we really do need to take the new technological opportunities that are going to be open to us. And you're right, Jeremy. I, I think you know you, you touch on the fact that professional firms rely on the kind of intergenerational workplace. You know, juniors learning from seniors, the kind of mentorship, apprenticeship, trainee model. And as Lucy, as you said, you know, it's about osmosis. It's about eavesdropping. It's the informal as, as well as the formal. But I think there's a number of forces at play from our perspective. You know, I think that we're seeing desire to come back vary by not just kind of demographics, you know, when you were born, the kind of classic cohorts, but stage in life. Young people in their 20s see the the office as a social place. Others in their mid-30s, perhaps with young children who've moved further out of the city, see the commute as a, as, as, as a kind of a hindrance. And therefore, you know, the, 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 the earning of the commute varies by your life stage. And therefore, there is a challenge for how you achieve learning and, and development. But we also see the idea that technology in network strength, you mentioned social capital, Lucy. I mean, social capital can now be measured, of course. And the platforms we're using, you know, Microsoft 365, can see the, the kind of net, net, the network, the network strength, and can course correct. You can bring people back who are isolated. You can reinforce strengths or network ties that should be there, which are, are, are not apparent. So therefore, again, we can begin to engineer serendipity and just not leave it to chance. I think you're right, Philip, in terms of, of the different demographic impulses in relation to their relationship with the office. But actually, learning and development is a universal thing right the way through your career. The whole essence of knowledge work is that knowledge workers update their knowledge. And I think that we've got to look at new formats and practices. And this whole idea of everyone back in the office and it's face-to-face and over the shoulder, I think we're going to see rapidly a move away from that model. There'll be some of that, but it will be augmented by these newer forms of technology. And it, I mean, it is fascinating to have these conversations for me because the, the idea of how technology is changing the workplace and this, this concept of learning, and that's something that's come through a number of the, the podcasts I've done. I spoke last year to Elizabeth Vignac, she's Director of Innovation at Cisco, and we were talking about using you know, photorealistic holograms in the workplace that makes this person that you sort of see through the computer it makes them feel more human and that's a really critical part of how people engage so I think it's it's fascinating 
I'm going to sort of meander us around a bit because there's such a lot to cover. And the other the other thing that keeps coming up when we look at the challenges of hybrid working is is leadership and what's the role of leadership? How is leadership challenged by this new um, way of working? Do we need to think what it means to be a leader? Do we need to rethink the role of managers? And I'd be really interested in your perspectives on how you think leadership is evolving. You know, what management practices we need to unlearn or reimagine for this new future workplace? Well, I think it's interesting that we're seeing the idea that watching the backs of people's heads can no longer be the only way to manage. And I think leaders can respect and understand that. I think that, you know, what we're finding is that there's a kind of reimagining and a re-kind of embracing paternalism, the idea that actually you need to be intentional, people need purpose. And and therefore, we're seeing organisations reimagine why one comes to the workplace and, and what more one gets out of that that commute and that commitment. So leadership is less around presenteeism and much more about results and outputs and purpose. And I think what we're finding as a result is people are rethinking the physical space to align with that vision. You come in not just for the work aspects, but for the social aspects of, of, of being in the same organisation. So we're seeing new amenity in the office that doesn't drive individual activity, let's say working out in a gym, but drives collective activity, let's say singing in a choir. Um, And so therefore, leadership is about driving that kind of sense of purpose and belonging. And that involves shaping experience, which I think is a very new area of, of innovation that leaders will need to both understand and then embrace. I would add to that the observation that Leadership is very difficult right now. Leaders feel a bit lost. We're in a transitional period. And there was a study by Gallup last year which showed the extent of manager burnout and also a crisis in middle managers who've been leaving in their droves. There was also a report called The State of the Manager which said that you know being, being a leader right now is more challenging and less rewarding than ever before and more exhausting. So what are we going to do about it? And I think that we need to move away to a much more fluid organizational structure. And there are companies who are piloting this. They're not thinking in terms of hierarchy or the stratification of the physical workplace as a reflection of, of, of the management structures. But they're looking at a more fluid work environment that is governed by a more self-governing Um, form of practices. So there's all kinds of things going on in companies who are really piloting the future. And a bit like learning, leadership is on the cusp of something new and different. And it's not, uh, in terms of leadership, it's not just about, you know, using new technologies in new ways. It's also about reviving some age-old skills like listening, like empathy, like showing some compassion. And I think that the way companies, a lot of corporate organizations, the way they've been structured has led to poor management. There was a management crisis before the pandemic. The pandemic has brought it out into the open and given us the opportunity to unlearn, to unwork these structures and come up with something new that's flatter, that's more boundaryless, that enables people to work in the way they want to work. 
That's really interesting, Jeremy, because one of the things that I think is interesting to our readers is that the sort of traditional workspace, you you kind of defined your your status by your space, you know, how important you were, depending on how big your office was, where you were sat, you know, how close you were to a window in some organisations. And I'm interested to, to hear you talk about this sort of concept of space being used differently, not necessarily um, so reflective of status, but what's the purpose of it? Do you think that's going to drive change in how people perceive leaders? Well, I think workspace doesn't necessarily dictate the culture of an organization, but it does reinforce it and support it. And I think what we're seeing, and I've been discovering this from talking to our members around the Work Tech Academy network, is that we're, we're moving away now from this idea of modern efficiency, rectangular spaces in box-like buildings. You know, we all know the glass box meeting room where somebody's at the head of the meeting. We're seeing a lot more use of the circle of curvilinear spaces, which are more democratic, you know, horseshoe layouts for meetings and campsite setups. So there's a kind of more democratic exchange of views. This is subtle, but it's showing a different type of leadership inside organizations. The use of space and the use of form is actually a very real and tangible manifestation of what the culture of the organization is all about. But Lucy, you also hit on a very important point that we are beginning to see the separation of space and status and indeed the move to unassigned space where people don't have their own desk or office. And that's right across the spectrum. We're seeing law firms adopt shared uh, workspace all the way through to banks, technology firms, pharmaceutical for the first time ever. And we're in all sorts of interesting conversations. People are saying to me, how do we do this? Do we make people reserve or book a desk? If so, is it a kind of unloved, anonymous bit of furniture or is there something different? How do we enable the kind of consolidation, the densification of the workplace, which is important if we're only using it for a few hours a week? So that's a space saving and therefore a cost saving and also a sustainability paradigm. But if we're not going to give people space and it doesn't necessarily reflect status, then what is the next phase of evolution? I mean, it's re- it is really fascinating to talk through how space can be a really important part of defining your culture, a manifestation of, of your culture. And it's a really helpful gateway into the one other thing I wanted to cover in the time that we've got. And you know, we've seen this idea of of culture, of purpose. We've seen that move up the agenda. And I've spoken about it quite a lot on this this podcast. But in relation to the office space, it really brings to mind a conversation I had with one of my guests last year, Derek Newbury. He's the senior director of the Co-Collective's org and culture design practice. And he had this great hope for the workplace of the future, was which was people would be coming to the office because they wanted to come, not because they felt somehow they needed to be there or they were expected to be there. And that's obviously a really admirable ambition. But we know from the people we speak to, and I'm sure it's the same with the people that you speak to, that actually encouraging people into the office, that's still a really big challenge for lots of employers. And and we also have this sort of worry that studies have shown us that certain groups, often women, minority ethnic employees, Often they have a greater preference from working from home. And then that raises questions about proximity bias. It raises issues around inclusion. So I'm really interested to hear 
your insights on how we can get to that place where people are coming in because they really want to be there. They're actively choosing to come to the office. It's an important part of the culture. Well, I think the first step towards that, Lucy, is is acknowledging that experience, how people feel about the office, is as important as process what people do in the office. And we now know that the office is no longer a place or even a process. It is an experience. And companies are now beginning to take the whole idea of workplace experience more seriously. And that poses a challenge to the way that organizations are wired up. Because experience is a mix of of what you do at the personnel level, people policies, involves technology, whether it's seamless, whether it's accessible, and it involves space. And what have companies done traditionally? They've had an IT department, an HR department, and a facilities department. And so now we're beginning to see these three silos, you know, opening out, coming together to try and provide a kind of much more unified service experience, a seamless experience for employees. And we're also seeing new job titles emerging in in the workforce. Philip and I have been collecting these, Chief Experience Officer or CXO, Head of Team Anywhere, Chief Heart Officer, Head of Dynamic Work. These are just some of the new job titles that are popping up inside large organizations. It does reflect a move away from efficiency to expression and, and to experience. I think to add, Lucy, that I think your, your point around this, this, what we call it magnetizing versus mandating, you know, there's the Elon Musk view of the world, the Muscovites who are forcing people to come back to an office, the more interesting approach, which is magnetizing, you know, making people want to come back in. And with, there's some interesting research, again, in, in, in the academy that Jeremy's referenced that talks to those resolute returners versus the choice champions and the other ways we've dissected the various options that are out there for firms and organizations. But the last thought I would, wanted to share with people is that experience can be shaped. And, and we're seeing most of our clients wanting to now adopt and select and implement a workplace experience app. You know, we all love and use our apps on our mobile phones. Well, the workplace app market is booming. We have inside the business and app consulting group, and there's about 30 or 40 apps now that are helping to shape workplace experience. And that's not just about, can I book a desk? It's about, well, when should I go into the office? You know, who else will be there on that day? And what kind of space should we use and sit in together? What else is going on? Now, Although it's much more self-service today, the, the near future will now be around nudges and suggestions. We're going to see the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So very soon the app will suggest, Lucy, look, the best day next week to go in will be Wednesday. Most of your team is in. There's a talk about a particular subject and there's after work drinks. And therefore, it'll help shape the experience you want, help shape the reason to go back in. And that magnetism will be there to drive purpose, belonging experience and, and that activation we're all looking for. And and it's not just a story of apps and AI. At the architectural level of creating experience, there is going to be experience master planning. There's going to be experience mapping. We're going to take the spatial techniques of retail and hospitality. And already people are t- saying that the most important document in designing office space is not going to be the space plan, but it's going to be the storyboard. Invented nearly 100 years ago by Walt Disney, 
This shows animation. This shows the movement of characters through a series of spaces. And this is very important. The idea of storyboarding the future of the office is, is very different from space planning, which is sitting people down at desks. But it, it's a more dynamic form of design, but it does reflect what we're going to see in the future. Thank you both. It's really fascinating and particularly talking through what we can expect for the workplace and how actually the workplace is a really, really important part of our culture. It's an important part of bringing people together and that although a lot of things are changing and there's a huge investment in technology, that there is still a, a place for the workplace in the future of work. And that's been you know, really fascinating. Before we finish, there's one question I've been asking this of all the guests on our podcast series, and that's that over the last few years, we've seen the spotlight shine on the future of work. We've seen the myriad of opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. But what I'd like to hear from the two of you is what you think is missing from that conversation. What do you think isn't getting enough attention and why do you think that's important? Well, I think, Lucy, that it's a difficult one. There are quite a few things I feel are not being given the attention. But the one I'll choose is really kind of back to diversity and inclusivity, especially. I think that, you know, where almost every firm and organization has that as a core corporate value and people try and recruit to meet those values, we then seem to park that value at the front door of our buildings and build a one-size-fits-all workplace. The same lighting levels, the same noise levels, same temperature, same desking and furniture. And, and in effect, we ignore the benefits of, of diversity, You know, whether it's neurodiversity or cognitive diversity. And I think we need to now celebrate difference, whether it's somebody who has a need for different temperature. And we, we well know that, that males and females work best in different temperatures whether it's the ability to show that there's a good quality of an environment, whether there's the ability to personalise through adopting different light levels, whether it's because of your eyesight or because of the way you like to work. That, to me, is the missing ingredient, a workplace that's no longer homogenous but truly heterogeneous and, and that provides choice and variety. Yeah, I agree with Philip. I think the whole issue around inclusion and diversity. It's coming up the agenda, but rather slowly. There's a wonderful definition of diversity as, you know, counting the people and inclusion about making people count. And I think we're doing better on diversity, but we've got to make the people count. That is a really, really lovely thought to end with. Very, very powerful. Thank you both so much. If you're listening and you'd like to find out more about WorkTech Academy, headed by Jeremy, you can visit worktechacademy.com. And to learn more about the Unwork Consulting Group, headed by Philip, you can visit unwork.com. You can also purchase Jeremy and Philip's book, um, Unworking, The Reinvention of the Modern Office, on Amazon, as well as at WH Smith and at Waterstones. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you.